Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LaGreca, and this is Courage to Hope. And tonight's guest is Rob Horowitz. And Rob is somebody that is helping me with a bill in the state of Massachusetts and does a lot of other things involving with the prevent opioid uh, situation across probably the country, right, Rob? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yes, sir. Yes, we're working on this nationally. So could you tell the audience basically what, what you do and what your credentials are? Sure, sure, sure. So Prevent Opioid Abuse was founded um, by a by a couple, Stephen Elaine Pizicki, Tony, with a, with a story that is unfortunately very similar to sort of your personal story and a lot of stories around the country where people have lost loved ones due to the opioid epidemic. And they wanted, in, in similar fashion to what you're doing up there in Massachusetts, they wanted to make a difference so other families wouldn't have to go through what their family went through. Their, their son, Steve Jr., um, has got a sports injury, um, started taking Oxycontin, graduated from there to heroin, and um, then was fine, you know, was in and out of rehab, then was fine for a couple of years. Then as as what happens, he, re, he when he relapsed, he went back to his, his old dose, his old tolerance, but had no tolerance and unfortunately overdosed. And is no longer with us. Um, his his mom Elaine and dad Steve came out of that experience thinking that if they had only known, because um, um, the original oxycontin was prescribed to them with no warnings, no no understanding that it was addictive, um, that if they only known the risks of dependence, they, they would have been able to look out for signs and symptoms. There may have been alternatives. So. Um, what, what they were really dedicated to do is um, take this model law that we developed, the first state that passed it was New Jersey, um, which at the point of prescription, Tony, um, the doctors are required to discuss with the patients at the point of opiate prescription, um, the risks of dependence and addiction in the case of with minors, with their parents as well, and also to discuss potential non-opioid um, pain relief alternatives which is, you know, there, there, there's now a lot of research that says there are ways for most people that, that are equally effective in treating pain that, that don't have the risks of, of um, dependence and addiction. So the first state we adopted this law and some other laws with, but this was the main law, was New Jersey. Um, then went on to Rhode Island, where we have now passed it um, through, you know, through work of a, a lot of people around the country have now passed this in 20 states. Red states, blue states, um, states like Nebraska, states like Florida. It's not all, you know, not all Democrat states, not all Republican states. Oklahoma's passed it. Um, and that is, um, you know, how you and I are working together in Massachusetts with, with you at the lead to adopt this law. Um, in this case, it's uh, H2164 sponsored by Representative Carol Fiola out of uh, Fall River, but we have 13 co-sponsors to pass a similar version of legislation. So people in Massachusetts will get the same information as, as these, as people in 20 other States at the point of prescription. So they can make an informed decision 
and they know to look out for signs and symptoms, and they um, understand what the alternatives are. I understand in the states that it's that the bill has been passed, the uh, the overdose rate has not gone up. Has it gone down even a little bit? It, I, I think probably fair to say some states it has. It's gone up because, as you know, it's gone up because of the advent of fentanyl, which has made opioid dependence even more de deadly. We we lost eighty thousand people nationally last year. Um, I think probably what's fair to say is it's gone up less rapidly. Certain states like New Jersey, it's stayed flat. And and we know because we did, we, we've done some research that the law is effective. Um, in New Jersey, because it was the first state, so we had the longest amount of implementation time, we contracted with a Massachusetts college, actually, Brandeis University, to do a research study of the effectiveness of the law. And what it showed is from about 25% of medical practitioners, doctors warning patients about the risks of addiction. Compliance went up to 90, 95% because it was now required. And that um, the, the number of opioid um, prescriptions written went down fourfold because, because this has an impact on in two ways. One, it educates the patients, but also it educates the doctors and practitioners. And once they're starting, and once they have to be more conscious of what they're doing, um, in many cases, they realize there's an alternative to the to the opioids that can be prescribed and be equally effective, especially for what we call acute pain pain you know, pain from a, from surgery, pain from an injury, um, immediate injury that you're going to heal from because that's where you get sort of what we call new initiates, people that get started on opioids over the long haul. Yeah, well, I've <clears throat> I have found from my own surgeries that by denying the opioids and doing the 800 milligrams of ibuprofen and and mix it with the Tylenol like every six hours. Um, I've had no problem getting through it. You know, it's not always great, but it's not great with the opioids either. You know, yeah. so yeah, and and, the, and blind pain studies show that that's the case for most people. Um, that, right. that most people do as well, um, if not better, and and without the risk of of long term dependence and and addiction, um, by by doing those kinds of alternatives. There are now, um, Tony, a couple hospitals, actually, one in um, New York, Maimonides Hospital in Brooklyn, big hospital, where they do breast cancer surgery and other surgeries um, without prescribing opioids at all. Um, now, some patients need it, but for most surgeries, and they do blind pain studies, and the people that, they, that don't get the opioids get other kinds of treatment, um, experience no more pain. Well, that's great. Um so, Rob, let's ask him, let me find out a little bit about your history and sure. why you're in this and everything. Uh, you grew up in New England? I actually grew up in New Jersey. Um, in New Jersey, okay. New Jersey, um, grew up in South Jersey near Philadelphia. I was born in Brooklyn and I moved to Rhode Island, um, neighboring state of, of Massachusetts, obviously. Now, I want to say in 1994, a while ago. So, so okay. Uh, so in, in Rhode Island, um, almost a Rhode Islander, because you have to, you know, you have to sort of be born here to be a real Rhode Islander. But they, they almost they almost accept me by now, Tony. That's right. I know how it is. You know, you got to say, you know, Cranston. You got to have the Cranston exactly. twang, you know, to be official. Um, exactly. And and are you an you're an attorney, correct? I'm not. I, I'm actually by trade a um, political consultant. Um, Political consultant. Okay. I, uh, 
I, I work now more on, I, I still do occasional work on election campaigns. I do do that, but I do most of my work on, on issues I care about. And this is I'm working on opioids, opioid prevention is one of the prime ways I work on it. And I became involved because Steve and Elaine were um, clients of mine on um, Steve's, Steve's a developer on, on, on his business side a little bit and also longtime friends and acquaintances of mine. So when they got involved in this, they got me involved in this. I see. Now, who does the 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 the, the newsletter that comes out to prevent opioid uh, prevention? I, I forget how it. How does it work? Yeah, it's the Prevent Opioid um, Abuse OFA, which sorry to do all the acronyms. Opioid Education Foundation of America, which is our tax deductible arm that that does more webinars and education similar to what you do on the radio, but um, not as well as what you do on the radio, but similar to what you do on the radio. We have educational webinars so people can learn about the issue and and also learn about alternatives to, to opioids. Um, I do the, I, I do, I produce the newsletter and I, I write most of it, but, but our whole team contributes to it. And how many, uh, how many people subscribe to it? We have, we, it goes out to roughly 20,000 people around the country and, and our particular um, advocates get it, but, but our particular um, people that we really reach out to are every state legislature Slater in the country is on our e-news e list. Um, every key staffer in Congress is on our e-news list. So we, we, we built a list that, that one keeps advocates informed, but also keeps people that can make a difference who are in power and are elected officials or appointed officials who are working on these issues informed about issues. So it's, it's one of our prime prime ways we get information out to decision makers, um, political decision makers and governmental decision makers. So if somebody wants to sign up to be on it so they can see it, how do they do that? I think the, the, the best thing to do is um, in fact, and this is a good idea. We should have it. I don't know that we do right now on our website. So I want to people see people to do that. Um, but we'll put a sign up tomorrow, Tony. We'll put a sign up on the Prevent Opioid Abuse website so people can sign up for the for the e news that way. Right. Okay. Right the Does it come out like twice a month or once a month? Or? It's usually monthly. But but if there's something timely, it, we put it out more than a month. And we also do um, through the um, foundation. We, we also do host monthly webinars and those get thousands of people. And for people who are medical practitioners, nurses, doctors, um, doc physician assistants, a lot of the webinars you can get continuing medica medical education credits for if you, if you view them. That's good. You get them in the fold so they understand the exactly. dangers of opioids. Exactly. Yeah. They're the ones who, who are treating patients. They're the ones who are on the front lines of prescribing. We want to make sure they get the, the most up-to-date, timely information about it and about safe, safe prescribing methods. So this, um, we go back to the bill, H-2164. We, we tried to put it in, in the session before this session, and it got out of committee if it didn't get voted on. Is that how... Tell, tell us how it works, because it seems it's kind of frustrating for me to have a bill that nobody ever votes on. You know? Yes. Yes. I mean, what happened in, in the previous legislative session. So this would have been 
probably the end of 2022, I want to say. Um, we the bill um, the bill was passed out of the health committee, um, but then it, the way in Massachusetts and in Massachusetts, interesting. Uh, in one way, believe it or not, it's more efficient than some other states. And I know it doesn't feel that way, um, but because there's a joint health committee, so at least you only have to get it. We're both House and Senate members sit. So at least, at least you know you don't have to get it through two different committees. But then from the health committee, it has to go to the health financing committee. Last time, that is where the bill got held up. Um, and sometimes what happens on, um, and I think it did on this a little bit. Um, one is sometimes you just run out of time because there's so many bills, and there's only so many they're going to pass. Um, and and this should have been a higher priority than it was. Um, but I think we learned from that experience, you know, we got working earlier this year, we're now up to 13 co-sponsors. I don't think we had that many co-sponsors last time. So, so we're more optimistic. And, and what we've learned around the country is sometimes it takes two, three, four legislative sessions to get something, even something that is this much common sense to pass. You do occasionally get some pushback. Um, and I think we got a little bit here from um, the medical societies from even though there was a lot of individual doctors and medical practitioners who are very supportive uh, uh, as, as an organization in, in, in states. And I don't think they were all that active here, but they were a little active. They pushed back because they don't, because, because they view it as another requirement. Um, of course, it's a common sense requirement um, and something they should be doing anyway. Um, but, but you do get interest group activity here that that you, that we have to push our way through and we have in many other states. So you said, you know, it ended up in the health finance committee. Yes. Um, is there any cost to this? I mean, I don't see any where it costs the state. There's any a money. little bit. There's a little bit. You could argue and I have, and sometimes you could, you could there, there'd be a very little bit, but you, you could argue it really shouldn't have to go there, but that's, and, and I, I made that case. But that is that, that's really sort of an internal legislative thing. In the usual course, what they tell me is if it passes the health committee, it should pass. It usually passes the health financing committee. But the good thing is we know that's where it got stuck last time. Um, so we know once it gets through the health committee that we have to pay extra attention to John Lawn, who's the chair of the, the health financing committee. Uh, to make sure that he's he's okay. Um, I think he may have been without speaking ill of the representative, I don't mean I'm sure he's a good guy. He may have been a little skeptical last last year. You know, some of it is you're trying to, we try to piece these things together. You don't always get 100% of the story unless you're inside, but I think we have it. So, so we kind of know where the roadblocks might be. We also have a governor, who um, Governor Healy, who I know you have a good relationship with, who is um, very supportive of these kinds of issues. So uh, I think we can draw on her to be a supporter at the appropriate time. So we're pretty optimistic, but but if for anyone in the audience, you know, it always helps to contact your legislator, um, tell them to support H two one six four, tell them to sign on as urge them to sign on as a co sponsor for H two one six four, because when, when when legislators hear from their constituents, it makes a really really big difference. And the last time wasn't there something about veterinarians or somehow somehow there was certain to be there was stuff written into it that had nothing to do with it in the beginning. And yes. How does I, that... think, I, I, I think we took care of that. I'm, I think we took care of that, but that I, I think that was not helpful either. Um, as I read, you know, I'm, you know, 
drawing on my two-year-old memory here, but I think that was not helpful either. But I think that, that I, is, I found it very confusing. Yeah, it's like why would you even have to have a veterinarian concerned about? about yeah, whoever um, wrote, whoever on the legislative end was, I think, just trying to be exhaustive. And sometimes the problem is, you know, if you're sitting there and doing it sort of like a rote legislative writing thing, you're like, okay, we did the practitioners, we did this, we did this. It, sh it probably shouldn't have been in there and no one caught it, but I, I think we're good this year. Okay. And um, how, how do you get paid? Um, for this Unless you for do this for free. Um. It feels that way. No, I don't do it for free. Um, I don't do it for free. I, I do do it because I love it, but I, I do get compensated. And all the money for Prevent Opiate Abuse and Opiate Education Foundation of America is all supplied by Stephen Elaine Pizicki. So so they fund um they, they fund all the work we do um nationally and you know and the help of providing Massachusetts. Who is that person again? It's Stephen Elaine Pizicki. It's a family. Steve is a developer he uh fairly large developer um and his his company is called sjp properties and um he's been a successful developer and and they really wanted to dedicate themselves to uh to this cause in honor of their in honor of their son so so they they fu they fund the effort well that's it's good it's nice to have people like that behind us Oh, it's unfortunate the why they're there, but it's it's nice to have somebody to do that. And yes, that's and pretty we, similar to what I do with the radio station. Uh, I could say our radio station is nonprofit, but technically it isn't. But we, we're not a station right. that's making big bucks by any means. Um, you know, we spend big bucks, but we're not making any. You know, so. Um, and by the way, congratulations on your. Uh on your courage, on your, the award for your show for, for the education work you do, which I saw, which yeah. we did promote on, um, because it's a good example for people around the country. We did promote on our social media, you know, sites, both, both on the prevent opioid abuse site and on the. I on saw the that. Site, so, yeah. So thank you very much for doing that. Um, so you've been in this, what, 10 years now you've been doing this or longer? Probably probably a little i think we've been at this probably about eight eight years eight nine years eight so years in there okay since 2015 probably yeah, around, around there around there yes so uh, from your observation um the sacklers they're the they're the culprits that put out the all the false information they're the ones that helped the fda switch their you know, switch their paperwork. So instead of being for end of life care, it's now for, you know, thumbnail towing care. You know, it's like they, they, have, they prescribe opioids for just about anything. Um, so you feel that they should be, uh, you're familiar with the court case, I'm sure. I am. I am. And, and, and if you, you were the, the judge sitting on this case, where would you side? I think it's a really hard question, and I'm not exactly sure. I would say because because what you're balancing is there's money that could that's being held up um, that could go to help a bunch of organizations and people trying to fight this. On the other hand, the Sacklers are getting a pretty good deal, a better deal than they deserve. So I don't know how to square the circle circle there. The problem is if 
if the settlement is rejected, you're back to the drawing board. Um, at the end of the day, the Sacklers are going to be rich no matter what happens here. So the question is, do, do you want to settle it now? Have, have at, at, at this, which is certainly an imperfect settlement, have the money go into the states and the towns and the cities. It will never make up for the damage they did, but at least something comes back. Or do you want to hold out and then go go through another four or five years of court stuff? So I I. I honestly, I'm, 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 I know I'm doing what, what what they say economists do. On the one hand, on the other hand, I honestly, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to be the judge in the case. I, I, you know, who's obviously looked at this all much more, um, much more granularly than me. But that's sort of what I think. To, those are the countervailing pressures. On it. Yeah, I'm. I'm just. I I just feel they should not have personal immunity with a corporation filing bankruptcy. People people aren't the corporation is. So they, I feel that they should have, and I do believe that the Sacklers should be civilly tried as well as criminally tried for their for their wrongdoings. I mean, they 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 killed a million people. No, maybe I, I, more. I think you're probably. Yeah. I think you're right. I guess the question is, and I'm not. I, I'm not an attorney. So the question is, can you get there, and can you get there in enough time, given the limitations of, of the law and the protections that? Well, are, I, the I other. Obviously, some some of the state attorney generals feel like you can because they're opposing the settlement. So, and they're and they're lawyers too. So, yeah. The other <clears throat> the other part of it is um is on the personal damages that the that the bankruptcy decided to pay. You're gonna pay people over eighteen years, right? You know, I'm I'm one of those parents who's got one of those lawsuits. Right. So if they if they gave me the maximum. Um, I'm 77. If they gave me the maximum, I'll be 95 when I get the last penny. Mm. You know, they, why don't they have to pay it now? They have the money now. They should. It should should be paid now, not over 18 years. And especially the 18 years, it's pretty well stated. They're going to get the 18 years. is going to come from the profits that Purdue Pharma is going to make over the 18 years. Right. So they're basically paying nothing. That's this kind of the way I the way I see it you know and it's um it's tough I know if you're a parent that I know one woman who lost two kids and she's still paying for the funerals right and she could definitely use some money but even if she gets the max she's only going to get in the in the other there's some stimulate stim, what do you call it a situation that you have to do you have to prove that the opioids that that did your child in came from Purdue how is anybody going to prove that? Prove that? Hard. No, you're right. It's going to be hard. Yeah. And it, you know, I mean, I I pulled all the records from my sons, um, uh, from CVS, Walgreens, Stop and Shop, from every pharmacy that he ever shopped at, and I could go back to 2010. Mm -hmm. um, but it was expensive to do that. It was I had a right. lawyer do it, and right. it was a lot of work. You know, it took took a year. You know, wow. and and who's who can afford that if you if you're if you're anxious to get thirty five hundred dollars settlement or whatever that settlement's going to be, uh, it doesn't seem like it's anything that's going to accomplish anything. You know, so we we now have fentanyl coming into the situation big time, and um, let's hear your opinion on what's really happening today. Are we are we 
are we getting people addicted from pres prescriptions or is it uh, from other sources? Well, we still, one is we've made some progress on prescriptions. At one point, um, we wrote in the country north of 200 million, like 240 million opioid prescriptions every year in the United States, almost one for every person, which is insane. Crazy. Um, yeah. We're now still north of 100 million, which is still a lot, but, so, but it's come down and that's significant and that's helpful because that's where you get a lot of the new um new initiatives you get people started who, who haven't started before so that's still very important to get that further down we, we still our country in um we've got five percent of the world's population in the united states and we we, we consume maybe 75 80 percent of the world's opiates opioid um pain relievers so we're still way we're still well over prescribed but there has been progress the problem and, and it's good because less people are becoming dependent. Unfortunately, from that source, unfortunately, fentanyl has made it so deadly that um, so that it's really, really the way I sort of look at it. And that's a lot. Of, and clearly, a lot of the uptick in the overdoses is because of fentanyl, because you know it, it, people can ingest it accidentally. It's in the it's in the drug supply. It's in, you know, and it doesn't have to be an opiate. It could be cocaine. It could be even marijuana. You know, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And it's so cheap, you know, that, that drug dealers use it. And then they may not, they're not intentionally necessarily trying to kill, kill people, but they're not exactly precise about how they do this stuff either. Um, so all, even more important to prevent people from getting started on this stuff in the first place. And we do know that, um, for some people, not most people, but for some people, as little as five days, people become dependent. Five five days of prescription, all it takes for some people. And we don't know who those people are because people's brains are wired different ways and we don't have the knowledge beforehand of, of it. So all the more important to really emphasize preventing it at the source because um, as even though we want to fully fund treatment we want the fully fund evidence-based treatment. There's a lot of people in this country who need treatment, who don't have access to it, don't get it. Treatment, even for the best of it, and evidence-based is a hit or miss thing. It's it's a hard road. Um, some people get through it. It's good. And we want everyone to, everyone who needs treatment should get it. But much more, much better if you don't get started in the first place and you don't go down that road because it's a, it's a, it's a rugged road and everyone doesn't make it all the way through that road. Yeah, well, that's, we, the cartels are selling lots of products. So we have to, you know, there's two ways of looking at how we, we stop the cartels from bringing it in. Number one, or number two, we stop the customers from creating a demand. Exactly. And, and Tony, as you know, you know, cause the, we, in this country, we, 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 we've tried to stop the supply of drugs many, many different times, many, many different ways as, and and we should and certainly we should enter we should do everything we can to stop fentanyl from coming in. Candidly, most of it comes in at regular border stops. It doesn't come in necessarily like we, over the border illegally. I mean, it's obviously illegal when it gets here, but we should do everything we can on the law enforcement end. But we know from 20, 30, or 40 years of hard experience, if there's a demand for the product here, and there still is a strong demand, the supply is going to find its way in. Um, and, and so the most important thing, you, you want to work on all fronts. You, you don't give up any front. 
you know, you, you do law enforcement as best you can and, and, and step it up. But, but the, the, the one thing we can, we know works is prevent, you know, it's hard, but is prevent, preventing it at a source, getting people to not start. And then that, and, and then if the demand grows less, the supply will grow less because that's just basic economics, whether it's a, a legal product or an illegal product. I remember four or five years ago, we were, I was told, I'm trying to think of the name of the book that I read was something Wonderland or something. And oh, Dreamland by Sam Quinones, right? Dreamland. Maybe that's it. Yeah. How, how our soldiers were in Afghanistan protecting the poppy fields. Yeah. And, you know, now, now that we're not in Afghanistan anymore, is there, is there any illegal amount of drugs coming out of, out of Afghanistan like was, there, like there was? Probably not as much. There's still some, but fentanyl. The problem with fentanyl is you don't even need a poppy filler because you can produce it chemically. So it's really cheap to produce. You could, you know, you can produce it in a lab, you know, and you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be a Nobel Prize winning chemist to do it. So you get these labs in China, you get these labs in Mexico. They produce it. Um, so, so, um, you know, and, and that's, that's the new danger because it is, um, so potent and so deadly in, in such small quantities. What's to stop somebody from having a, having the components and then having the lab here in the United States? Not a lot. It's just, it's so cheap to import that, you know, you take less risk if you, you know, that's all, but, but that would happen if, if you, um, and there probably are, and I think there's, there are those in the United States. And and by the way, the other thing is, if you shut down the shut it all down, um, and we should try all the all the importing of it, you would get you would get more, you know, just like you had meth lab, we have meth labs in the United States. You'd get more meth, you'd get more fentanyl labs here, um, which is why, again, without what while I agree, you want to do everything you can to stop the supply. the The long term answer really is um, to, to work on the demand side. Because that's what we're going to always have the most control of. Because um, supply finds its way, um, and there's a lot of money at stake. And, and unfortunately, you know, supply will find its way because people, you know, for the level of money, people will take pretty pretty big risks, as as we know through history, um, to get to get uh, illegal products into the United States or anywhere else where there's a, an attractive market, as there is here. And how would you, how would you deal with the cartels? I'm going to give you. Imagine you're the new president of the United States. What do you want to do to deal with it? How are you going to deal with it? I think you, the the best way to do, you have to get, and it's hard, but you have to get Mexico on board. Um, and that's hard because the the current president, um, of Mexico. I don't want to say that he's in bed with the cartels. That might be too harsh, but he certainly isn't very hasn't been very interested in shutting them down. And and it's scary because they they control big pieces of Mexico. You know, big there's areas of Mexico. So, I, but I think I, I think you do have to address it diplomatically. Um, and I'm I'm not sure that it's realistic to say we're going to take the you know the seventh fleet and start blowing up parts of Mexico. I mean, like some people want to do, but I think the main thing is then the supply is going to come from someplace else. So I I, I, I know I'm kind of a broken record, but I think that the best the best thing we can do here, and we're, and we're making some fitful progress on it, is is re is restrict demand because if it's not fentanyl, it's going to be the next thing. 
um, you know, that's addictive, that's opiate related. Um, so if, if one is if we can get prescriptions, they're not the only cause, but we can get prescriptions down, you know, let, let's, let's get them down from 120, 30 million to 50 million, 20 million, only for people who really need it or people who are in severe chronic pain, you know, and who are just already, you know, as dependent as they're going to be, don't get new issues, start to do all that stuff and the market will be much less attractive. Um, but but unless we work on the demand side, my my fear is you know, I'm for any measure reasonable measure to keep this to keep um, to have less stuff coming in over the border, or you know in all the ways it comes in, or less labs here. That's a whack-a-mole effort. You know you you're never gonna. That's always going to be by definition imperfect. So so. You, you really need, and, and I've learned that over 40 years, learned just trying to fight heroin back in the day, fighting crack cocaine, same thing. All those, you know, you, you could go through the different iterations of, of, of the drug war and, and we put a ton of resources and smart people into trying to stop the supply and no one's ever succeeded doing it. Uh, you, you can slow it down and that would be good, which is why I think we work on education, work on the demand side, get, get people not to start you know, work, work hard on, on pain relief alternatives. They're, they're getting better and better. And we know from research how well they work. I think, I think that's, that's sort of the um, job one. That doesn't mean there's not other jobs. And, and those are the jobs of, that you're talking about. But I, I think job one remains prevention, education, stop, you know, and stopping people from starting down this, down this, what we all know is a very rocky road. Yeah. So if you had a choice, would you go after the, Cartels or the Sacklers? I go after the Sacklers. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, I think that's more doable. I put put it this way, and it's not just the Sacklers. I don't know if you go after them as much, but 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 all the drug companies—they're the ones who are the most complicit in this. All the drug companies, and by the way, I, I don't think doctors should be prosecuted, but the doctors all bought in because they, you know, not all, not every doctor, but the doctors bought no, in. There's- you know, it was a whole, there's a whole complex of, of things that happened here where where, um, it, where the profit motor was involved and also, where, you know, and the whole issue. And some of it was, was well-meaning was, you know, you have to pay more attention to pain. A lot of it wasn't well-meaning. And, and that's why it's up to doctors now to, to really, doctors help create this problem. Medical practitioners did. And, and, the, and there's lots of doctors who know that along with the drug companies. I mean, you know, they, by, by, by blindly following the drug companies, say, okay, yeah, give me some more of that stuff, you know, and, and going to big wealthy, going to conferences and nice, you know, island places um, and all that. Um, so it's coming on doctors to now sensibly prescribe um, and nurses and practitioners. That's why it's so important to educate the people in the medical community. And it's getting better. Uh, it is. People are learning, you know, but but I think that's that's the real. So I don't know if going after is the right word, but that's where I would spend my energy. You know, we well, have liberal energy. I mean, let's do everything. But but that I think that's job one. Yeah, I think after the pen and epidemic got out there, Johnson and Johnson and Cardinal Health and uh, what is it, um, McKesson, right? They they they, they were the. They were the ones who actually took the ball and ran with it. You know, the, Richard Sackler got it going, but he, yeah. um, but some of the other ones have, have are now doing more product than the Sacklers ever did. 
That's right. Yeah. Even pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens had had the, their role to play in our upcoming settlements. Because um, when we, just some of us, if you just look at this stuff and 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 there's less of this now, but when you have a pill mill, you know, and and you're writing that many prescriptions that at some point they knew they were writing too many of those prescriptions. So there's nobody's hands here is or particularly clean. I think the main thing is is the reforms going forward. We're starting to see that that's good, but we got a long, long way to go. As 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 we as I already said, and as you know, we lost eighty thousand people last year to to this to this epidemic. 2,300, 2,400 in Massachusetts alone last year in the most recently measured year as of September to September, you know, so, so we got a long way to go and, and fentanyl is just up the stakes because it's so deadly. Um, yeah, it's quick. If there's, you know, one and done kind of thing, it's released with, with heroin, people would bottom out after a while, but this such situation is you hit right. bottom, you're gone, you know. And it's like, I just put this in one of the, we, we do three sort of, every year we do three mailings in a row to every state legislature, old fashioned, you know, in the mail mailings, you know, yeah. it's to get people to introduce the bills around the country. Too easy know. to delete an email. Yeah. You know, and emails are good too, but the, just occasionally, you know, one's a letter and then the other two are just, you know, postcards. But um, put in one of it's with fentanyl now, it's taken opiates it's like Russian roulette. I mean, you just don't know, you know, especially so. Yeah. So that's why the focus it's your focus as well. You know, when your focus as well of, of getting people the information before, you know, especially parents, you know, get, you know, because you, you, know, you get teen athletes to get prescribed this stuff before people start to go down the road. Let's get them the information so they don't go down the road. Yeah, my situation, I never heard of an opioid before my son got injured, even though I actually I heard of it, I because his. His mother was on Valium at one time back in the seventies. Right. I didn't know I didn't know what Valium was, but I knew that it seemed to be a mind altering drug. You know, I never yeah. realized that that Mortimer Mortimer Sackler and and uh, Richard Sackler's three his father and his two uncles were were involved with that. They, they were doing the Valium and Lithium. Yeah, that was the initial. No, you're right. And the um, um, same thing for, we talked about the founders of Prevent Opiates, Stephen Elaine, they didn't know. And then still what happens, and we've been working more and more on this, is one of the real entry points now is, and has been for a while, is wisdom teeth extraction, where where people get prescribed, and, and you really don't, unless it's a very, um, just a really complicated case and very painful, as for this ibuprofen, Tylenol, you put that together, that takes care of this. But a lot of a lot of kids get started from getting thirty. Now at least Rhode Island has pill limits in Massachusetts, so at least you don't get thirty or sixty to start with. But people used to get thirty or sixty pills. Dentists for would prescribe for wisdom teeth, which you don't need. And and then the, the, Stanford did a study of. Kids who got started, uh, who got prescribed um, opiates and kids who didn't, and three or 4% or 5% of the kids who did a year later were still dependent on opiates. And that's all, you know, so three, four or 5% is not like a big, like a big percentage, but that's a lot of people. Oh yeah. And, you know, Tens of thousands. As opposed to people, the, the people who didn't get prescribed, it was like 1% or 0%, you know, so that's another entry point we're trying to work on, educate dentists, dentists um, and, and orthodontists about 
there's just better ways, you know, and, and right. also require them to do the same kind of warnings as, as we require doctors to do. That's usually in the legislation, but also just educating dental practitioners on, hey, you know, all these all these people, these 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 young men and women need or boys and girls is is, you know, a, a pretty heavy dose of Tylenol and ibuprofen. And that's going to work just fine. And then you don't go down this road. Yeah, I've been told that in other countries, I think Germany, for one, and South Korea, that you have to be of a certain age to even get a prescription like 40 or they, or they have very strict requirements. So all these kids in other countries are getting their wisdom teeth out. They're not getting Percocets. No, it's, this is one of the only it's, places. And they're surviving, you know. And they're surviving just fine. This is one of the only places that happens in the United States, around the world, where, where this stuff is prescribed the way it's prescribed. And that's why we have such a, if you look at our overdose rate, that's why it's so much higher than any, you know. I don't know if it's the highest in the world, but it, it's close. Oh, it's. Oh, it's yeah. by far the highest yeah. in the world. It's yeah, so. higher than the than the next closest five countries combined. Interesting. So yeah, so the, so you know, and it's because we're doing this, you know. Yeah. I mean, now the next thing, and you know, you keep saying education. So I, I know that in Massachusetts, every town is getting money from the lawsuits, not the Purdue Pharma lawsuits, but the other lawsuits from right. the drugstores and the um, uh, and so forth in the, um, the how you know Johnson and Johnson and and the McKesson and so forth. Um, what do you think they should do with the money? How do you think that money should be distributed? Because I, I every every county state in in Massachusetts, every town is doing a different thing, you know. And it's yeah, like, I find that to be somewhat. I, I to be you what magic wand and make me czar for a day, which yeah. everyone would regret after they did that very quickly. But I would have more of it done. My, my, my concern is that when you have a million different programs, even if they're good ones, like each town has its own prevention program, they each get a little bit of money for that. There's not really critical mass to, to, to do big things. So I, if I was going to distribute the money, it's not how it's being distributed in most places. I would distribute it more on the state level. So, because then you could have a, you could have a really effective state level public education advertising program, the kind of program, for example, that, that took, took tobacco, tobacco addiction did. down. Um, Cause it, it'll work, but you, you, you know how, cause you're, you're in the radio, you know, advertising, it works on repeated impressions of the same message. You can't have two ads and one, and, and one good forum and think that's going to work. So, so I would love, I, I would rather see a lot. And then I'd put a lot of money into uh or at least effort into educating the, the medical practitioners too, not just the parents, but the practitioners and, and ensuring they all get quality, you know, like every med school should have, and you shouldn't have to fund med schools should have, um, and it's starting to be, but should, should, should have mandatory safe prescribing education, all residents, doctors, nurses, everyone in their training, whether it's residencies, should be trained in prescribing and also trained to recognize the signs and symptoms of addiction. Um, that That's sort of what I would do with it. And also if you could, there, there is a mental health nexus. It's hard to, because you want to do this sort of precisely and I, and I don't have all the answers, but I would also look at the, at the, at the subs, at the sort of substance use disorder, mental health 
continuum and, and see if you could boost that because we never really got the parity. I mean, there was a bill passed actually, um, Senator Kennedy's son, Patrick Kennedy, who was a uh, congressman from Rhode Island for many years, is now very active in, in actually in, on, on working on opioid education, sponsored a bill that passed the Congress where you're supposed to get the same level of care. You have um, behavioral mental health issues as you do have physical issues. We know that's not still not the case, not insured the same way. So, Because I, I think that there's an overlap there, and I, I'm not smart enough to understand it all, but I know there's an overlap there. And so we could do more on that end as well. Yeah, we they one thing that I've never seen, and I remember at least, especially in the state of New York, and you probably saw them in New Jersey, when they had the money come from the tobacco industry, there was all these people that were like, <clears throat> I remember the guy who was uh, uh, District Attorney Berger from Perry Mason. He was on saying, ah, you know, as you know, I lost all these cases against Perry. And now I'm losing the biggest case in my life because I and he had a cigarette in his hand. And right. he said, because I was one of those people that you could never tell that I should quit because it's bad for me. And I, and I never did. And now by the time you see this commercial, I'll probably be dead. And he was, you know, and there was a, a guy that from New York who had a, an evening talk show and he'd be holding the cigarette and he'd be saying, no one's going to tell me I can't smoke. You know, and then two years later, after he had one of his lungs removed, he come back on and he says, I wasn't a very smart guy because this is costing me my life. And so those kind of commercials, we got to do that on fentanyl. I I, I think you're right. It's got to be fentanyl because people just don't get it. You know, I, I there was a college not too far from where you live in Massachusetts that had 14 overdoses on a weekend. And these kids were all partying together. And this was just within the last five months. And they were buying legitimate legal marijuana and they were putting on their own, they were putting fentanyl in it. And of course, none of them were chemists. You know, right. they weren't studying in college to be chemists. So how did they know? They didn't know. And they put way more than, than they should have. And I don't even know how they were doing it. Were they smoking it? Were they putting it in? Brownies, uh, I have no idea. But I talked to one of the parents. He was just beside himself. He couldn't hit this guy. Never heard of fentanyl, the father. Never heard of Narcan. You know, didn't know any of this stuff because we're not educating them, you know. And I think that's, that's right. It. I think that's right. And you got to go after people a different way now because, I mean, I, I talked to somebody this morning and several people that, don't have regular TV stations anymore. All they do is watch streaming programs. You're right. They're, they're 30% of, um, from my, roughly right now, 30% of Americans are, 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 I know you're familiar with this, too, near cord cutters. So they've cut their cable and, and yeah. they're watching it. But, but you can, you know, you can, um, if you're doing a public education effort, you can reach those people as well it just it's a it all gets a little more expensive because there's not you know three or four networks anymore where you can but but it's all it's it's all doable and you also have to factor in social media so, but but a, a concentrated effort can still be done at a certain price point that will make that will make a difference and and the research shows that that will work but people have to be especially in this world where everyone's attention is so divided and so 
fragmented, we get 10,000 marketing messages, each of us a week. You got to like with anything else, you got to keep, you know, you got to keep saying the same thing over and over. You got to find new ways to say it, but you have to keep saying the same thing over and over again. So it penetrates and also then work through the schools and do all the other pieces of it and particularly hit the stakeholders and the, and the people where that, that, that can that really can make a huge difference. Doctors, dentists, people that are prescribing this stuff so they don't, so they don't prescribe it or they describe much less yeah. of it and they warn their patients and, 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 you know, and was and, and people, you know, do aspirin and, and ibuprofen or do other forms of this, uh, uh, you know, massage therapy. There's there's a hundred way other ways to deal with pain there that are effective. That doesn't mean that there aren't some people who are still going to need for a limited period of time opioids. But but that but that's how I think we, you know, it's up to kind of all of us. Um, if you edu- if you educate so, the, the public. But, but you educate the, the public, you know, public, they'll educate the doctors. Exactly. So if somebody says, oh, here's a prescription for oxycodone and say, doc, I seen this on TV and it says it's not very, that it can be addictive. So why are you giving me this? Is there any alternative? I mean, exactly. it would actually be the reverse would happen, you know? Yeah. And, and um, it does. And that's why you sort of work it both ways. You give the patients, the potential patients, the information, give the doctors the information. It does work both ways. There's a yeah, program that's so uh, called Choosing Wisely, actually, which yeah. is, which is um, it's a national program, but it's aimed at medical waste. But it's the same principle because, they, they, you know, there's 15 or 20 percent of these procedures shouldn't be happening. Um, they're expensive and, so, and and actually they're all overall in healthcare. You know, they're expensive, so they waste money and, and they also can some, harm your health. And And what the program does is it trains people to ask four or five questions. And one of the questions is exactly about the medication, you know, is, is, you know, sort of, you have to take some responsibility for your own healthcare. On the other hand, we also want to have doctors and dentists and practitioners, A, required to provide this information to patients, because no matter how good an education job we do, um, there's still that point, you know, that, that, that real time point where people are either going to go down this road or not go down this road. Yeah, so I, I know you're not a doctor, but I know you're involved in this so much. When they, they passed the the MAT, medically assisted treatment bill, mm-hmm. um, it seemed to kind of go quietly in the night when they passed that uh, and allowing doctors. So uh, are you in favor of, of um, oh, yeah, people the- who are trying to lick the thing getting Buprofamine or suboxidin? Yes. Social- yeah, I, I, yes. I think you want to make it easier to prescribe suboxone, and that's what that does. And 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 um, because um, it's proven, it's proven to work. It's effective. Not, yet you still want to have you know counseling with it if you can, but it was so hard to prescribe it. And it doesn't make sense. You could you could you could prescribe an opiate really easily get somebody addicted, but you can't prescribe the stuff that helps them get less addicted, <laughs> that that gets them yeah. trans- recovery. So, so I, I thought that was we supported that in Congress. I think that was a good step forward. There's still too many state regs that are in the way of that. Um, that's still it's too bureaucratic. But that that was a good step forward. The other good step forward that happened in Congress that we supported is now it's at least a requirement for anyone who prescribes opiates to do some national, a national requirement to do some form of continuing, say, prescribing education. 
problem is it's not enough. So you still want to have states and Massachusetts requires, you want to have states that require ongoing continuing medical education on safe prescribing. But but at least there's now a baseline. There wasn't before like a year ago. So that's something else that happened in Congress. And as you know, today, getting anything through, because Congress is gridlocked for all the reasons we know about, getting things through Congress right now is very hard because they're too preoccupied fighting with each other to get anything done. But those are two, you know, small, good, but not, not even that small, good incremental steps that, that help address the problem. Yeah, I'm willing to bet if you look at the 80,000 people that overdosed and died last year, I bet there's a pretty good mix. It's probably 50% Republicans, 50% Democrats, because the opioid epidemic doesn't uh, doesn't pick sides. They just no. pick victims. They just take victims. Exactly. It knows no party. It knows no ideology. It it it, it, yeah. it, it is broadly now just, it's, you know, it was probably at one point, it was more disproportionately white and more disproportionately white non-college working class. But but now there's everyone in the country is affected. A lot of the gross now actually have been in the African-American community, which was originally wasn't as much. But it's now, you know, because of where it started, but but it, it's pretty broadly distributed and no one is immune. You know, yeah, I, I always felt that the African-American community didn't get opioids prescribed because they didn't have health insurance. They were the, the one group of people that had less health the families that had good health insurance were the ones that the prescriptions got filled. It's part of it. Yeah. And so there's some research that the doctors, not all, but that there was some bias. So and this way, it probably helped African-Americans. The people were more willing to um, were less sensitive to some of the patients or African-Americans pain, actually. There's some research on that. So in a way, that helped. It was, it's terrible that oh, yeah. that was the case, but in a way, because they didn't get prescribed. So there's the lot, but but now if you look at it, it's it's broad. It's the Latino population, African American population, rich people, poor, as you said, poor people, Democrats, Republicans, Independents. It's 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 everywhere, and and no one is immune. This is something we are genuinely all in together as Americans, and it's up to all of us to to help solve it because it affects all of us, our friends, our neighbors, and we, our and we we've got to work together. That's the big Absolutely. thing, in, in and we've got to take the money from those who have made the money and get that money and put it to good use on, on the preventive side. Exactly. And I, and I think, again, one of the first, like my town got $18,000. What can you do with $18,000 and how would you direct it to anybody within the town? And I, they asked me about it and I looked at who was on the committee and they told me that I couldn't be on the committee because I was too involved. <laughs> you knew too much and you were too I did exactly what they told me they said I was too involved and that they wanted people who were impartial and so they they took the school nurse and they took one police officer they took different people from different career you know different careers and and instead of taking people that knew a lot about what's going on you know I mean I was a bereavement facilitator so I talked to literally hundreds of sets of parents Right. So I know I know how ninety percent of them got addicted, and it right. wasn't from you know there were a few wise guys that tried pills at parties and stuff, but the majority wasn't that way. It was it was mostly high school kids were athletic injuries that seemed to be number one, and the yeah. and the dentist was number two. Yeah, no no doubt those, about it. Those are the you two know? two of the big gateways. You're right, and and the, you know? 
Yeah, I, I have the same opinion. I, I, I think, and some states are doing it better. Uh, New Jersey's doing more on the county level, which is at least because, you know, the counties are at least larger. They're doing more on the state level. They're not, it's, it's less town by town, although some towns do get, depending cities are getting. But I think in general, you know, that's that's sort of the problem is, you, you know, when you start to distribute the money in that small increments, it, it's very hard for anyone to get their arms around as opposed to saying, OK, let's let's make we kind of know what works. Let's make two or three big bets here and say, let's let's put the money in these two or three things, enough money, enough resources that that'll make a difference. But that's, yeah. that's politics of that are very tricky. Our, Once a our, town, a small town gets eighteen thousand or fifty thousand dollars, they they're gonna hold. Right. And so far, the town I live in has they haven't spent a penny. Right, they've had the money now longer than a year, and they haven't spent any of it. And a lot of that's yeah. happening. I mean, for example, Essex County, New Jersey. We 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 just met, we met with them actually, county executive. And this is a pretty big county. This is like probably a county that's got a billion dollar budget, I bet, or more. But they they're going first thing. They hire people. Maybe this is good, smart. Doing a study, a needs study. Then they're going to put this stuff out to bid. By the time they get to it, it's going to be a year from now before they spend dime one. Um, and obviously, if you're maybe you could argue if you're spending it really well, then that, that was time well spent. But I'm not so sure, given given how large this epidemic is, and given that there's a lot of research already done about what works and doesn't work. You don't need to do your own study. Yeah. Tons of studies that everyone's done already. That's counterproductive if every county in the country did that. Think yeah. of how much money we would waste on, you know. Exactly. exactly. You make somebody rich, but you wouldn't make the you wouldn't get the problem solved. Right. Well, we're just about out of time for today. And what I'd like you to do is is tell our listeners what what, especially the Massachusetts people, uh, what what can they do to help get this bill passed? They can call their legislator or email their legislator or write their legislator, their state representative, their state center, and ask them to co-sponsor and support H2164, sponsored by Representative Fiola, that will require patients and parents, require medical practitioners, doctors, dentists, physicians, assistants, assistants, anyone who prescribes to have a conversation with a patient to warn them about the risks of addiction before prescribing an opioid and to discuss um, alternative non-opioid pain relief treatments that they could take instead of the opioid. Okay. So um, this is Tony LaGreca, and this is the Courage to Hope. And for the past 55 minutes, we've been talking to Rob Horowitz. And um, Rob is a consultant, we'll call it. Is that what, what the best way to say it? That is the best a, way to say it. Yeah, where you as a consultant and is working on the opioid epidemic in many states and really doing a lot of work. I mean, this is really tiring and I I'm only trying to help in Massachusetts and I can tell you it's tiring and there's a lot of roadblocks and you've got to have a lot of persistence and you've got to have a lot of a lot of chutzpah to keep it going. And and eventually it gets there and it's very rewarding once you get there. But it's it's a lot of work and Rob's doing the best job out there. We really appreciate him. Uh, thank you, Rob, for your time and today. Thank, thank you, Tony. I've, I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much. Okay, you're very welcome. Until next time, this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope.